We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 19. Willie, the page number. You heard the man. 286 is our text this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 19. We will look at the entirety of it. Uh, but in order for us to do so, last week Brandon preached on chapter 17. And so we do need to fill a little bit of a gap there with what is going on beforehand. Uh, chapter 18 describes the, the deepening rift that's taking place uh, between Saul and David after David's victory over Goliath. David's popularity is beginning to soar. Uh, and his success is causing Saul to become very jealous and paranoid. And so chapter 18 opens with Jonathan, who is Saul's son, uh, becoming very close friends with David after witnessing his defeat of Goliath. And so as David continues his successes and his renown through his military victories, Saul increasingly, as a snowball does, uh, becomes resentful and suspicious of him. The people of, the, of Israel rejoice and sing praises to David for all the things he does, singing things like, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, uh, which further fuels Saul's jealousy. And then in a fit of rage, Saul twice tries to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he missed both times. This marks the beginning of Saul's obsessive attempts to eliminate David, who he sees as a threat. Saul also becomes afraid of David and removes him from his court, making him a commander over a thousand troops. But David, as the story progresses, just continues to have success, uh, behaving wisely, and it caused the people to love him even more. This increased Saul's fear and led him to plot more ways to have David killed. And so chapter 18 ends with Saul realizing that his daughter, whose name is Michael, interesting name, uh, that Saul realizes his daughter Michael loves David very much. And so he hopes to use her as a snare to have David killed by the Philistines. But David succeeds in this opportunity once again um, and gains a wife and avoids death. So... Very interesting things going on here for David. So by the end of chapter 18, Saul has turned completely against David, seeking his death out of jealousy and paranoia, even as David remains faithful and God protects him. And that's where we land in chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. 
And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he escaped? And Michael answered, Saul, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also, also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you send your spirit here into this place to open ears, soften hearts, that we may be receptive to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you here know that I love church history, and if you didn't know, you're going to now. <laughs> um, in early church history, we're talking about the first 600 years of the church, we learn uh, a story of a very famous preacher nicknamed Golden Mouth. Um, this is the story of the 4th century preacher named John Chrysostom, and his story really illustrates for us how affliction often accompanies God's calling. Chrysostom faced very intense persecution from those in power around him. And this is even after Christianity has been legalized in the Roman Empire. As the Archbishop of Constantinople, which is modern-day uh, um, Istanbul, Chrysostom was known for his very bold preaching that rebuked sin, even rebuking the sin of the nobility, such as the emperor and the empress. This angered many people, but it angered one person in particular. His name is... Um, is a city, who was the patriarch of Alexandria, which was a city in Egypt. 
is a city in Egypt. He resented Chrysostom's influence. And so using politics and using slander, this patriarch turned the emperor and the empress against John Chrysostom. They were, uh, he was jealous of his fame and conviction, and so they plotted to have him removed. And on false charges, Chrysostom was condemned by a very corrupt council and was exiled from Constantinople. But then even after his return for a season, followed by another exile in the grueling wilderness, Chrysostom found solace in his Lord. He found comfort. That's what solace means. Comfort in his Lord and Savior. Um, even when his supporters back home, they were, they were still praying for him. They were supporting him. Um, even to the point of government persecution for not recognizing the new uh, bishop in John's place. Well, early in 407, uh, we read, uh, we hear about John Chrysostom's last days. In 407, Arcadius and Eudoxia, which the names of the emperor and the empress, they decided to intensify the misery of Chrysostom's exile by deporting him to a very remote fortress on the furthest eastern uh, extremities of the empire. And the military escort that was with him, they were instructed to show no regard for John's health and his well-being, so he was forced to march the great distance on foot, was deliberately exposed to a deadly combination of scorching sun and lashing rain. And after three weeks of that treatment, Chrysostom collapses um, still some ways from their destination at a, at a small hamlet. And racked with uh, fever, Chrysostom dies within hours of collapsing. And he was only 58 years old. And allegedly, his last words were, Glory be to God for all things. Chrysostom found God's presence his refuge never losing faith in God's purposes for his life and his ministry. And though he died in exile, um, his example reminds us that trouble does and may come to those who boldly follow God's call. We often think that if we are faithfully following God, that he will smooth our paths and we won't uh, experience any hardship. But the story of David that we just read about teaches us that this is not always the case. Despite even being anointed as the future king of Israel, David faced mortal threats. Threats especially from those in the covenant community that he was a part of. Saul himself, King Saul, is the one persecuting him. King Saul refuses to accept God's rejection of his kingship, and so he lashes out in jealousy and with rage seeking to take David's life. David has been faithful to God, but that does not spare him from hardship. It does not spare him from an easy life. He experiences undeserved, that's a key word, undeserved persecution and affliction at the hands of his brethren. In this, David's story as we'll see later on, foreshadows the afflictions of Christ himself who faithfully followed his father's will and yet in, uh, faced very intense persecution, affliction, betrayal, and ultimately death at the hands of his own people. And so as followers of Christ then, we too shouldn't be surprised when we face hardship. 
resistance, possibly someday even persecution for walking the narrow path. When we remain obedient to God's call, we may experience from others some kind of a jealousy of sort, malice. The brokenness of this fallen world assails us just as it did David and Christ. We're not exempt from this. We don't live a health and wealth life as Christians. The condition of the godly is often affliction in this life. And yet through it all, we're called to endure with trust in our Heavenly Father's purposes, His wisdom, and His ultimate redemption. And that truth, that trust, it manifests in our seeking comfort and seeking solace. And that's an overall theme that we want to look at this morning. There's two, two uh, subsets of a theme we want to look at. We want to understand that God's calling brings affliction, often brings affliction, and it requires us to seek his means of comfort. And in two ways, we'll see that we can take solace, we can take comfort in the covenant community, but ultimately we seek solace in the spirit of Christ. So to our first point, in times of affliction and distress, we can find solace in the covenant community of believers, of like-minded Christians to which we all belong. Though not every single individual member may give the um, exact same level of of comfort and the same measure and, and of peace to, to some, uh, peace nevertheless can be found in this very place. Bonnie was, has been a great testament to that we've seen. The text exemplifies that truth uh, greatly in the life of David. David found protection and refuge from the hand of Saul through two key people, Jonathan Saul's own son, even David's wife, Michael, who later actually, as we'll see, proves to be less than faithful to the covenant. Um, She also, though, provided him shelter in his time of need. So regarding Jonathan, then, in the first seven verses, we see Saul, king of Israel still, even though he's been rejected by God, he's consumed by envy and resentment. Towards David, David's popularity and success has become a thorn in his side. Instead of celebrating David's achievements in battle against the Philistines, which has brought glory to Israel, and in many ways is a kindness even to Saul himself, Saul allows jealousy to take root in his heart. And in his rage, he issues a very shocking order. He commands his son Jonathan and his servants to kill David. It's a very chilling directive that that reveals the depths of jealousy in Saul that drags even the mightiest of leaders to their downfall. Saul's obsessive jealousy has blinded him to any sort of reason at this point, and it leads him to plot the murder of his most faithful servant, but also his son-in-law. But into this dark narrative steps Jonathan, Saul's son, David's beloved friend. Notice in contrast to his father that Jonathan's heart remains pure. It remains untainted by this poison that is infecting Saul. As a covenant brother, our text says that Jonathan delighted in David. 
not in a a romantic fashion as some want to see, but in in, in brotherly love. Their bond is so tightly knit. And so Jonathan does the right thing. He approaches David and he warns him. With great courage and integrity, Jonathan proceeds then to plead with Saul to spare David's life. He reminds his father of David's faithful service and many victories that have benefited the kingdom, calling special attention to David's victory over Goliath. He says, you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Jonathan wasn't afraid to risk his life on behalf of the life of his friend to save it, even before this maniac of a father. Well, thanks be to God that Jonathan's words do find their mark in Saul's heart, at least for the moment. Um, Saul's jealous rage subsides, and he listens to Jonathan's wise counsel, although it's probably important to, to state here that Saul's mental state at this point is very much fluctuating. And so uh, any decision that Saul renders at this point should be very suspect. But David's life is spared. And the kingdom is protected from his vile bloodshed. And Jonathan, what he does is he takes David under his wing, under his protection before Saul, once again to be in his court. One commentator draws our attention to verse 7. Look at that very carefully. He mentions that Jonathan's initiative is emphasized by the triple repetition of his name. It's kind of awkward to read. And Jonathan called David. And Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as before. Jonathan is a key player at this point in his protection of David. Do you sense the willingness of him, of this man, to take another who is experiencing affliction, whose life is overshadowed by a looming threat of a king, and is escorted before him under the gentle wing, you can just kind of picture the hands over the shoulder move, under the gentle wing of a friend, that is Jonathan one in the community of the saints. That's one example. And then we we kind of have this very interesting interlude in verses 8 through 10 where David is said to have fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. You can contrast that, though, with um, what we read just after that. David playing the liar to, to Saul and to soothe his mind, who's continuing to be afflicted by a harmful spirit sent by the Lord, And in that moment, we read of Saul. It's like he just turns a 180 here and seeks to kill David once again by pinning him to the wall with his spear. We can only imagine the anguish, the distress that David must have felt in that very moment. It's very interesting when we read the contrast there that he uh, who had struck the Philistines and made them flee is now himself struck at by his own king and being forced to flee himself. It's a travesty. It's an injustice that this very man that he had served faithfully, whose life he had once saved with song, 
now sought to end his days. And then we move to this episode with David's wife, Michael, daughter of King Saul, risking her own safety and standing to save the life of her husband. Look at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, if you look at the beginning of our text, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. What are the next words? But Jonathan. But Michael. But Jonathan. Those who come to intervene to protect David. Not only are they ones like David himself, those who are in the covenant community, but they're also in the same family. That's what's very interesting about this text. This is a huge family issue going on here. And you can already get a sense, there's very deliberate word usage written there to describe who Michael is and where she aligns herself. The text describes her in verse 11 as David's wife, not Saul's daughter. Saul had turned against David and sought to kill him. But through Michael's cunning deception, David was able to escape Saul's murderous rage yet again. And she replaced David in his bed, this is very interesting, with a household idol, and lied to the soldiers to seize him. Courage, of course, on her end to defy her own father, the king, in order to protect uh, her husband. But can we pause here, though, to consider uh, this very curious detail of why there's a household uh, idol in Michael and David's bedroom? She's using, as means of deceiving Saul's guys, um, this idol called a teraphim. It was probably man or um, uh, about my height. This was a huge object. This isn't just a small little idol you would put on your mantle. This is a big deal. Um, but we're offered no divine commentary on this whatsoever, um, except that it was used as an aid and as an assist in letting David escape. It's a little bizarre. But could this be speaking even to the imperfect state of God's chosen people at this time? Clearly, Michael has strayed, and perhaps luring even David in some measure. We're not told. That's just mere speculation. Straying from pure worship of the one true God. And yet the Lord, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, was able to use even Michael's idol as part of his plan. It's not excusing the sin of idol worship on Michael's part. We're offered no words to that end here, but we can't help but, but wonder what is going on there. Doesn't excuse the sin and even, even the deception, the lies that she propagates as well. We're reminded of the midwives in, in the book of Exodus who lied to Pharaoh's men to allow the baby boys to escape. We're offered no divine commentary as the, the ethics of all of this, but God uses it unto his purposes. God accomplished his purposes through even the most flawed vessels. The Lord was still able to redeem the situation and employs Michael's deception as a means to preserve the life of his anointed. 
So we have good-hearted, delightful Jonathan and the wife of a fugitive, Michael, who would actually go on to criticize her husband for dancing in an undignified manner, for bringing the Ark of the Covenant to uh, newly recaptured Jerusalem, and that was an act on her part which brought down punishment upon her, rendering her barren till the day she dies. But these are two people, nonetheless, in the covenant community that God used to create a place of solace for his afflicted servant. You look around the room here this morning, we're just a tiny portion of this worldwide covenant community of the saints. If you've been baptized in the name of the triune God, you then profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You stand with your other brothers and sisters as aides and as a help to those who are facing trouble and affliction. Yes, we have flaws, perhaps great ones like Michael. Perhaps there are sins in our lives that God, Lord willing, is purging from us. We're experiencing um, godly sanctification and repentance in this way. But God can use even in our uh, imperfect lives a use to minister to those in need. The communion of saints means we never face trials alone. When one member suffers, we all suffer together. With courage, wisdom, and love for one another, we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ to our troubled and afflicted brothers and sisters. And so, may we ever strive to build up this community here at Beacon Light uh, of hope and as a refuge for those in distress. So this first main point, this is the this is the tangible side of things. This is, these are things that we can see with our own two eyes. But even greater still is the spirit of Christ that ministers to our souls in times of affliction. We turn now to point two. Verse 18 tells us that David fled from Saul and came to Samuel at Ramah, and then, may, and then they both make their way to Nioth, and that's where all, the, all of the other prophets are. His life is in grave danger. Saul's jealousy and paranoia is at a greatness yet again, seeking to destroy him. But the Lord, in his infinite mercy, protects David in this episode in the most fascinating way possible. Saul, relentlessly pursuing him, he sends messengers to capture David. And the Spirit of God comes upon these men And as verses 20 through 21 tell us, they began to prophesy. Saul sends more messengers, yet they too fall under the power of the Spirit, and they also end up prophesying. Finally, Saul himself seeks to go to Ramah, kind of like a you know, well, no one else can get this done. I'll go and do it myself, you know, sort of mentality. But in his defiance against the divine will, he approaches, and the Spirit of God is upon him, and he begins to prophesy, and he strips off his clothes. This is a very uh, glorious demonstration of God's power here, of God defending and protecting his anointed servant David in this very miraculous way. 
Recall earlier in 1 Samuel, we read how the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Saul when he was anointed king. And when he was anointed, he was caused to prophesy. This same Spirit, the very Spirit of the living God, is the one who now renders Saul's efforts against David completely futile and still causes him to prophesy. This is a very astonishing turn of events that the Spirit in overtaking Saul brings this mighty king very low. It's a, it's a humbling reversal for this very arrogant man who has forsaken the ways of God. God is making a mockery of Saul's violence and hostility toward his chosen servant. But notice what else the Spirit causes Saul to do. Consider consider the significance here of Saul stripping off his own clothes at the Spirit's prodding. Uh, Brandon mentioned last week the significance in the book of 1 Samuel, um, the theme of clothing, of, of giving clothes, of ripping off clothes as thematic terms for granting kingship or losing Uh, kingship. Saul stripping his clothes was not an act of mere madness. It wasn't an act of happenstance, but it carries great symbolism because Saul, under the authority of the Holy Spirit upon him, is divesting himself of the very robes of kingship that he has so brazenly abused and dishonored through his actions. So by tearing off his royal garments, Saul is enacting this metaphor. God was stripping away his reign, making it unmistakably clear that Saul's time as king is coming to a ruinous end. His nakedness laid bare his loss of status and authority. No longer would he wear the robes of a monarch. The kingly attire that he had once symbolized his divine appointment is cast off, a reflection of how Saul has forsaken his sacred duty. His naked form portrays the vulnerability and the shame that's really going to now characterize his legacy. The Lord was not only removing Saul from the throne, but is tearing away any last vestige of honor and esteem that he could possibly have. This is what the Spirit is causing Saul to do. And at this moment, God, the Holy Spirit, is protecting David through this shameful disrobing that would be a harbinger of the complete downfall of Saul to come. Holy Spirit protecting David by this picture of a disrobed, naked king. There are times in each of our lives when the afflictions of this fallen world loom very large. When the dark clouds of adversity gather, whether the storm arises from forces without or within, perhaps even within the confines of this church, far be it from us to instigate these kinds of storms in each other's lives, 
And in these uh, moments of affliction and trouble for us, it can be all too easy to lose sight of the truth and to give in to despair. But we need to remember that our God alone is our sure protection and defense in every trial that we face. No matter how desperate your situation, how intense the opposition you face, you can take refuge in the sovereign, loving care of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, remember the humiliation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. During his earthly ministry, he endured an unimaginable affliction and persecution. Even from those closest to him, even from his disciples, believe it or not, he was betrayed, he was denied, and he was abandoned. He was mocked, beaten, ultimately crucified in the most cruel and unjust manner. And yet through it all, Jesus entrusted himself fully to his Father's will. With steadfast faith, he committed his very spirit into his Father's hands. David wrote, Many, many years before Jesus took on flesh, as a psalmist, into your hand, I commit my spirit. And we kind of leave it at that. But you know what he wrote after that? You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. If the sinless Son of God faced such extreme hardships with steadfast trust in the Father, how much more should we unworthy though we are, turn to him in our difficulties. When friends turn against you, when family disowns you, when those within the church wound you, when the devil accuses you over and over again, highlighting your sins before you, when the darkness crowds over you in depression and anxiety and you're constantly worrying about the future, you can cry out, With David, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He has redeemed you through the blood of Jesus and sealed you with his spirit. He will never leave you or forsake you. It strikes me that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, willingly subjected himself to the same uh, perilous situation as David, becoming a man of no reputation, despised, rejected. Jesus endured the shame and the nakedness that fell upon Saul, even. We tend to picture, when we think of the crucifixion and all the pictures we could see of it, of Jesus wearing a loincloth. I guarantee you he was not wearing a loincloth. This is why the cross was so shameful. He was completely naked, bare to the world, experiencing shame. This is the kind of shame and nakedness that fell upon Saul. Jesus was mocked, scourged, and nailed to the cross. Then we might be clothed in robes. On the third day, he rose victorious. Death could not hold him. On the third day, he rose victorious, breaking the power of sin and death. And then upon his ascension, we find the most marvelous truth. And this is what um, the, uh, the Nicene Creed highlights very carefully for us. That the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. When Jesus ascended, we, we understand 
because of his ascending to heaven that we do not face trials alone because in his ascension he then gave and sent his spirit, the great comforter, to be our ever-present help. Prophet Zechariah declares, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So in the face of affliction, we find the comfort of brothers and sisters here, Christ's blood-bought bride. Uh, But let us cling to the solace, the comfort that we find in the spirit of Christ to sustain us and bring deliverance. Don't lean on your own understanding, but cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you and he will guide you and grant you wisdom in moments of trial. And it's through his power that you can find the strength to endure, the courage to persevere, and the kind of a hope that really transcends any earthly trial that will come your way. Not may come your way, will come your way. So let's lift our voices in praise and in thanksgiving because we aren't alone in our struggles. The Spirit of Christ is here. He is the great comforter. He's with you, guiding you, sustaining you. And he is leading you towards uh, eternal glory that awaits the faithful. So whatever you're going through right now, he will hold you fast. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for who you are and for sending your son Jesus to die for us and to clothe us in his righteousness. Upon his resurrection and his ascension, we recognize the power of the spirit that has been sent to us, that great comforter, the paraclete who is with us all the days of our lives, Lord. Help us to cast our burdens upon you, for you care for us indeed. No matter what trial we go through, may we lean upon, depend upon um, those here in our midst as brothers and sisters in Christ, but may may we ultimately depend upon the power of your spirit, the great comforter with us. In Jesus' name, amen.